0: Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And before we start the show, we'd like to bring your attention to some cool conferences happening around the world.
1: Specifically, NDC Sydney, happening August 14th through the 18th in Sydney, Australia.
0: Now, I personally can't make it to Sydney this year, but you're going, right, Richard?
1: Absolutely, I'm going, you know, because Sydney. Uh,
0: Yeah, awesome. I wish I could go. So
1: go to ndcsydney.com and register
0: now. And for more great NDC conferences, go to ndcconferences.com. Right. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Really looking forward to this episode with uh, Jonathan Stark. We're going to talk to him in a few minutes because uh, I got a feeling we're going to be talking about pain. (laughs) (laughs) and i like talking about pain i mean you know we relate to it so easily i guess how you doing my
1: friend i got nothing to complain about man sunny days good times all is well
0: i'm making some uh, ketogenic fried fish for dinner tonight nice for breadcrumbs i use crushed pork rinds and romano cheese Mm -hmm. and i fry up some cod in olive oil oh man it's good stuff yeah, I am at a point
1: now where I have different pork rinds for different purposes. There's crushing pork rinds, there's snacking pork rinds. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, the ones you like to eat. You know who likes pork rinds? The dog.
2: <laughs> it's all I all about the has, dog. I man. Can give the
1: dog some pork rinds it's like this pig skin, you can have that. <laughs> right. So, he knows when I start crunching on pork rinds, like, oh, something good. And then he's like, hey, get that guacamole out of here. None of that. Don't need none of that. Just give me the pork rind. Don't need nothing else. Yeah. Of course, you always need to keep a glass of water around with pork rinds because they're a little drying. They are
0: desiccation.
1: Yes. Yes. And it's very funny to see the dog eat a few of them and look at me and then go over the water bowl and just slurp it down. Like, (laughs) okay. Consequences. Probably do good meatballs with them, though.
0: Yeah, I don't know. But I do like the breading with them. I think it's a yeah. good good technique. Good stuff. Well, all right. We've fooled around long enough. Let's uh, roll the music for Better no Framework. Awesome. <laughs> I see. What do you got? Well, I found this tool. I hadn't heard of it before and hadn't seen it. But it, it really is kind of neat. It's called Coralogics. OK. And so this is 1444. So go to 1444.pwop.me. And you'll find it, Coralogix, dot com. And essentially what they do is they have a way to turn regular old log files, you know, HTTP log files or whatever, mm-hmm. into really interesting data. You know, it analyzes these files. They have this algorithm called aggregation. And here's what they say it does. It condenses millions of log entries into a narrow set of patterns by automatically analyzing each log record, then separating the constants from the variables. And uh, essentially what you can do is get BI Insight, Without actually having to do the work of looking for trends and looking for things. Well, it sounds like these guys have already done it, right? They've
1: studied all these different kinds of flows and they've hit a spot where it's like, okay, I know how I can help you with this.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's pretty cool. Turning your um, logs into dashboards that actually tell you something, you know, about your business, not about, you know, the HTTP traffic, which is fine, but you know, sometimes you want to know more. It's all about finding the exceptions, right? Yeah. That sometimes often is a wheat versus chaff problem. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And they can find those things. They can find the interruptions and the disruptions and the problems just by looking at the logs. Pretty cool stuff. So nice. again, I haven't used it. Uh, It just looks really, really interesting to me. So there you go. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, my friend? Grabbed a comment off of show 1066. No, no, not the Battle of Hastings.
1: Uh, this is from November of 2014 when we talked to John Stark. Uh, and we were talking about the digital watch at that time, right? That yeah. was. You know, the beginning of the smartwatch craze. Look how well that went. And uh, <laughs> uh, and but Christian Verwald's comment was really interesting uh, just because it speaks to, I think, a bigger problem. He says, I love this show, but I'm not going to go for the power belt because I think somewhere in that conversation, I think I mentioned I was on a Kickstarter, right. which I still haven't received, by the way. And this show is two years ago. Oh, no. Um, That is like the whole belt is full is a big battery so you can charge your devices yeah but christian's comment is i don't want to have just another device that i have to recharge when emptied i've already got lots of those four phones two ipads a slate and then if i had a belt which would be strapped to my trousers it would because if it wasn't it'd look really weird that's fair (laughs) it'll be too much so the belts a step too far the four phones is not a step too far christian you're okay with four phones (laughs) but one belt nope not good enough that's where we draw the line that's the line there i just saw the line right there (laughs) He is using a battery cover to his iPhone, right? So that means he's using the expanded battery so he doesn't have to charge quite as often. He gives him 100% power backup so it's sort of double usage of the phone. So this is the problem here, right? You get a bigger battery, you just use the phone more, right? If you, if you took all the batteries out, I bet you'd use your phone less. I'm just guessing. That's yeah. me, I'm saying. And I notice he doesn't use any like the wireless charging because that's clearly not fast enough, right? right? But when you've got to travel a lot, it's kind of useful to have those things built into your devices. I just don't like bulk-up devices. I'm perfectly happy carrying a couple of extra power packs.
0: How about we just get better batteries?
1: Yeah. yeah. well, Battery technology will continue to move on, but it is interesting to just think in terms of how you manage batteries. and And rather than having a dedicated battery. He's gone down the battery pack built into the device view.
0: Yeah. Viewpoint. I just like having that separate battery. I like a big battery charger that I have. You know, it can charge a phone several times or keep a HoloLens charged while you yes, use it. that big anchor battery. Yeah. 14,000 milliamps. Yeah. You know, that kind
1: of thing. 20,000 milliamps. So you can just charge and charge and charge. The thing is remembering to charge that thing.
0: Yeah, well, you know what? You don't have to charge that thing very often. And when you no. do, it's an overnight thing. Yeah. And it makes it easy. You could take yeah. that thing out with you when you go out, and you know you're never going to run out of juice.
1: You know, the other thing I'm now carrying all the time is that is the Anchor charger, which has USB-C and a bunch of ports on it. And I actually leave one of each cable already plugged into it in a bundle. Yeah. All right? The whole thing wraps together with a piece of Velcro. So right. I basically reach into my bag for this wad of power distribution. Right. Unwrap it, plug in one plug, and now I have... Something for the phone, something for the Kindle, something for the battery pack, something for my band. like It's just all of them. Brilliant. And I don't have to dig around. Yeah. Anyway, Christian, you obviously hit a hot button topic, but you know we're recording on a Friday afternoon, so we are easily distracted. And uh, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+.
0: And if you comment there and read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Don't worry. We turn notifications off on our smartwatches. (laughs) Good one. So you don't have to worry about waking us up. All right. Let's bring back to the show Jonathan Stark. Jonathan is a mobile strategy consultant who helps CEOs transition their business to mobile. Jonathan is the author of three books on mobile and web development, most notably O'Reilly's Building iPhone Apps with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, which is available in seven languages. His Jonathan's Card experiment made international headlines by combining mobile payments with social giving to create a pay-it-forward coffee movement at Starbucks locations all over the U.S. And he is also the host of a podcast called Ditching Hourly, which we're going to talk about today. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, I can't remember who it was that turned me on to this podcast, Ditching Hourly, but the whole idea comes down to, all right, so you're a consultant, and it's your job to come up with a semi-reliable estimate for a, a particular gig. And what happens? You either make it or you don't. And more often than not, you don't. And The whole idea of giving somebody a fixed price is very scary to people. But you're basically saying, look, your incentives are mismatched with the customer's incentives and they mistrust you automatically just because of that. And you you really don't become a partner of theirs. You become a liability. Mm.
2: Yes, an order taker. Yeah. So there's a thing that I... Referred to as the hourly trap, which is that hourly billing at the beginning of a project, well, forces is too strong a word, but I would say encourages everyone to have conversations about the wrong thing. So it's really no surprise that the uh, when projects don't turn out the way the client desired or the way Mm -hmm. that we expected. Yeah. So so there's this kind of catch-22 where people are afraid to give a fixed bid to... A, uh, a customer because they're afraid of scope creep because there's always a lot of scope creep. But it turns out, in my opinion, that hourly billing in the first place causes a lot of scope creep yeah. because you didn't f- talk early on about what the desired outcome of the project was. You talked more about a punch list of features that they want you to build. Right. And as the project moves on and you get closer to the end, the the client starts to realize that they're goal which was perhaps unstated because no one really brought it up is not getting achieved or the needle that they want to have moved isn't getting moved so they start to give you different things to do
0: or the the list of features isn't quite what they thought it would be and not what you agreed to because of you know snags that the developer
2: may have gotten into along the way sure yeah there's of course there are surprises but i think that that Having a conversation about scope and how much work is involved and all the kinds of things that we talk about at the beginning of a project that we're going to build hourly is really the wrong thing to talk about. And at the
0: beginning of the project, you're you're talking about finding out why the customer wants to develop the software, why they want you to do it. And uh, you know there's a whole bunch of questions that you essentially try to talk them out of uh, hiring you.
2: Tell us about mm-hmm. that part of the process. Sure. So at the beginning of a project, you know, you're talking to someone that you might work with. I I do exactly what you said. I, I go through a list of questions, which essentially feels like I'm trying to talk them out of working with me, which yeah. obviously is counterintuitive. Uh, doesn't seem like the kind of thing you do in a sales process. But <laughs> uh, if we walk through it, I think it'll make sense to people. So there's there are really three categories of questions that uh, I, I need to ask. In, a, in the original sales meeting. So when we finally get a chance to talk, whether it's in person or on the phone, I'll let them brain dump all of the things that they know about the project, all of the things they think they probably want me to do. And once they kind of have that out of their system, off their chest, and they've exhausted all of that, I'll say, all right, great. Thanks for that. I've got all the notes here. Let's back up for a second and talk about uh, the bigger picture. So I have some context for the decisions that I'll uh, end up making in the development process. So why are you guys even thinking about doing this? Why not not do this? Mm -hmm. You know, I can tell from the discussion that this is going to be a a large, probably expensive, probably risky project for the organization. There must be some reason why you decided that this was the thing that you want to do versus all the other things that you could do. So. It's kind of like a question about opportunity cost. Why are they deciding that this is the action they need to take? Is this almost like a how did you get here that you decided that building software was a good idea? hmm Right. Why not use an off-the-shelf solution? Right. For example. Sure. And, and they'll say, rarely they'll say, geez, we didn't think of that. You know, it, it almost yeah. never happens. By the time they get to me, they've probably already looked into all of the things that they think would have been cheaper or easier. But I want to know why they're not going with those. It's kind of important. Hmm. So, so they'll go through that and they'll usually give me some really compelling answer. That's the easiest one usually to get, a, yeah. uh, get an answer to. The next thing I'll want to know is why do they want to do it right now? You know, did something change? Did one of your competitors come out with some new release? Are you, you know, do you feel like there's some opportunity in your market that has a a small window, time Mm -hmm. window, and that you need to capture it if you're going to? Um, Is there some reason that you need to do this now? So the questions that I would ask would be like, are you, you know, you, you mentioned in your brain dump initially, dear client, that you've known about this problem for six months or a year why now? Why do you need to act now? Hmm. And they'll either say, well, we don't really, we're just, you know, getting prices from people or whatever. They might, they might indicate to you that there actually isn't any urgency. Right. But more often than not, by the time they're reaching out to consultants, there is an urgency and they'll say something like, you know, our competitors just released this feature or uh, there's a new president in the White House who we think is going to change the regulations or who knows what. There could be an opportunity or pain or some threat Uh, But there'll be some reason why they don't want to put off the project for, you know, 6, 12, 18 months. There's some urgency there. Right. And so, uh, you know, as they're giving me this information, I am furiously writing down their words in as much exact detail as I can. I want to capture their exact language, even if it's even if it's not quite right. Sometimes people use technical terms in a way that is wrong, but I still want to capture exactly what they said.
0: And you keep drilling down until they get to what it means to the business,
2: right? Yes. Oftentimes they'll be vague. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to get, I want to, I want to be convinced that I can satisfy the customer. And there's a, a lot of things that go into that. So if they're, if I make it no secret that I'm expensive. and In fact, I'll joke about how expensive I am leading up to the meeting, leading up to the conversation in the beginning of the conversation so that they know, I might come flat out and say, look, I'm not the cheapest option here. Why are you guys talking to me? Right. You know, things like that will be coming up. I'll bring things like that up throughout my communications with them. So when we get to the point where we're talking about, we're going through the why conversation. I'm trying to figure out how they're going to justify to themselves the fee that I'm going to present them with. Right. right? Because I do, I hate writing proposals. I do not want to write a proposal that gets rejected. Yeah. So I want to know all of these things. And if if I go through this list of questions and I get to the end of it, and I'm not convinced that they're going to green light the proposal that I'm probably going to write. I'll say something like, Look, you guys, this has been a great conversation, but I just don't understand the business case for hiring me. I I feel like you're gonna write me this huge check, and then at the end of the project, you're gonna wish you hadn't. Right. I I cannot figure out why you're even why you're pursuing this. Uh, usually, it doesn't come to that, but if I got to the end of an hour-long phone call and I still had no clue yeah. how I was gonna deliver some kind of beneficial business outcome to the to the client, I'd come right out and say that.
1: Yeah. And do you find most of the time it's like they've done development before they know they need a more experienced person? Like what what do you find
2: in that scenario? Mm, great segue into the third of the three categories <laughs> of questions. <laughs> so the first one is why do this project at all? The second one is why do this project now? And the third one is why do this project with me? Right. So the last this last group is the one that, you know, my, I have a coaching program for consultants. And this is this this is the one that scares people the most. Uh, But what you really want to do is raise every objection to cheaper alternatives. Right. So if you say, look, you know, in our conversation, you told me that you have an entire internal web team. Why not just have them do this project for you? You know, they could, they could probably do it maybe, or why not outsource this to, you know, an offshore firm that charges a 10th of what I charge. Mm -hmm. And like you said, a lot of times, or certainly the ideal clients will be like, no way. We've done that before. Yeah. That blew up in our face. Right. This, is, this is a very high-risk project. It's very high profile. Yeah. There's a lot riding on this. And we really we, we want to go Mercedes. We're not, looking for, we're not looking for a Kia here. Yeah. Right. So, and there'll be plenty of people who are not the right client for you. You know, mm-hmm. that's one of the things with this approach is that you, you know, you can't work with everybody. Yeah, why wouldn't you find that out at the beginning yes. rather than at the halfway through the project? Yes. When they've spent the entire estimate and they can see that they've got 50% more to go if they're lucky. Yeah. 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 It's like, do you want to find out they don't like your price before you start working or after it's too late? Yeah. Just trying
1: to save yourself some grief, right? Absolutely. Fire the bad customer early,
0: right? I, or the just the misfit. Like, this is not a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. Have you ever not had to ask the questions, any one of them? You know, they just volunteered the information. I had the, I had the uh, experience where a potential customer will call me and right away they say, you know, what we're doing right now isn't working because, you know, the people don't have experience, blah, blah, blah. So they basically answered the why me question before we even have the, the, the why now and, and why at all question mm. conversations.
2: Yeah, a lot of times clients will come to me because of a book I wrote or because they they saw me speaking at a conference and they like run up to me as I'm coming off the stage. So they mm-hmm. already they already know they want to work with me. They're not in comp- they're not even putting it out to bid with other people. Right. You know, so that one but but people don't start off that way. You know, that's like sure. uh after, you know, five years of being in business, maybe you've got the kind of marketing gravity that people just already know that they want you, they just don't know if they can afford you. Right, that's right. a great place to be in, but you don't start there. You have to work up to that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and I think it's always challenging when you're new to to self-employment or to trying to do this on your own. You just want anything. You know, you mm-hmm. don't have to be dry for very long if you're like, yes, I will do
0: whatever you want. Right. I just need to make a living. Mm-hmm. And that's not really a
2: good uh, position to be mm-hmm. in when you're trying to negotiate a contract, is it? It makes it impossible to have a conversation like this because mm-hmm. you're desperate. And, and they know it. It's so easy to smell desperation, the stench of desperation. You know, there's, (laughs) there's no way to disguise it. You have to genuinely not need the work to have a conversation like this. So I, you know, I tell people when you're starting out, you're not going to do every sales process like this. Mm -hmm. You need to somehow have either a baseline, uh, cash flow, you know, baseline income that's going to cover your bills that allows you to make a leap like this, either whether it's savings or whether it's, you know, some sort of staff all gig that you're working uh, by the hour and you're making good money. But, you know, you you realize that you're not going anywhere. You're not growing. You're not increasing your profits. It's mm-hmm. so like the only way to increase your income is to work more. Um, the trick with it, though, when you're this is where the hustle comes in when you're getting started with this is that you the the work that you're doing to keep the lights on cannot take up all of your time.
0: Yeah. And
2: that's a good thought. mm, It's really hard to, to be disciplined about it because it's like the fish grows to fill the bowl. And if your client is like, Hey, we need you 40 hours a week and that's turning into 50 hours a week Mm. and they're paying you, you know, by the hour for all that time, that's great. But you got to recognize that you are just kicking the can down the road, you know, because when that project ends, you haven't been doing any marketing. You haven't been building your body of work. You haven't been doing anything to increase your reputation. You've just been working inside of this company, doing what they tell you by the hour for money. And it's not, you might as well be an employee. Right.
1: You are an employee. Hey, John, give us one second here to pay the bills.
0: This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform.
1: You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012,
0: and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard, web, and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET
1: Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes
0: environment.NET .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200 plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there.
1: You can use Visual Studio
0: to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. And you're listening to .NET Rocks with uh, Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell. We're here talking to Jonathan Stark about ditching hourly. And
1: it's interesting that you can get yourself into this trap where you are an hourly person, whether you're self-employed or not. You know, it just, just because it's in the form of a contract doesn't mean you aren't just an hourly worker. Work an hour, bill an hour, pay an hour, no time to do any business.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, tra- a trap. You know, you you end up working so hard that... You can't get ahead, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's weird, right? But the the thing that so ditching hourly, we we've, we're talking right now about just one way to ditch hourly, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's 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 a way to do fixed price projects, which to me is a relatively long term collaborative enterprise between you and a client, maybe some third parties, maybe somebody who builds an API or has some marketing system oh. that they use. Mm. And it's this collaborative thing. It's probably going to take three months, maybe more like six. And you're not really in control of the whole thing. You can just sort of do your piece. And what I suggest to people is to do fixed bids for these projects. Uh, But a lot of people who have done fixed bids in the past, I've I've found a lot of people who actually have experimented with it and they got burned every time and they were afraid to go back to it because they set their prices way too low. Yeah. Right. So what value pricing is, which is what I do, is different than other ways you could price a fixed bid project. The way that people usually price a fixed bid project is time and materials or cost plus, where they have all the wrong kind of conversations up front, you know, trying to figure out how much work is going to be. They're all scope conversations. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Right. So they come up with this list of things the client wants them to do, tasks really, and they figure, well, this is probably going to take me this many hours. I want to make this much per hour and then I'll tack on some random, you know, multiplier for project management or unknowns or a handoff or administrative or whatever. And they, you know, whatever they multiply a hundred, two hundred $200 an hour by a hundred hours times 15% for padding. And they give that as the fixed price. That is almost surely too low because you haven't talked about the the one thing that really matters, which is what's the desired outcome to the business. Right. So if the business, if you can get to that outcome, which is what you have the why conversation for you, like, okay, so if I understand it correctly, the outcome that you guys want is to decrease card abandonment rate on mobile by, you know, 20% or even by 5% that would turn into a million dollar increase in sales per year for you. And, uh, and, and, and I understand that this is urgent for these reasons mm. and that there's no other way to do this with off-the-shelf software because of these constraints, whatever they are. And instead of instead of basing my price on how many hours I think it's going to take me to achieve that goal, I'm going to base my price on you know, a fraction of the first year's annual increase. So if it's a million dollars in the first year of increased revenue, I'm going to uh, probably charge them $100,000 regardless of how much work I'm price it at $100,000 regardless of how many hours I think it's going to take me. Right. And
0: then you basically become a partner with them in achieving the goal. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. And that's different than, you know, I need to be paid
2: $50,000 for whatever, 500 hours of work. Right. Change the size of the buttons. Try blue. That's not working. Try red. Okay, maybe make the logo bigger. Right, okay. yeah. What if, yeah. But there's
1: also an element there of I only get paid when you get paid.
0: Yeah. Kind of thing. I, I'm going to make you money and you're going to give me some of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you ever do uh, a deals for, you know, uh, maybe a piece of the sales uh, for the first year or so where you sort of no, say, I, all right, no. I'm in, it, I'm in
2: the skin with you. No, because there are too many factors out of my control there. So like, yeah, right, right. you know, their marketing campaign could flop. Their CEO could yeah. get indicted. I mean, there, there are a million reasons that it might not turn out that that outcome uh, is what they achieve. But what I'll do in the before the proposal, I'll say, all right, uh, how, how are we going to measure progress that we're making toward this goal while we're still doing the work? So that we can steer the car, you know, like, how do we know that we're going in the right direction while we're still doing the work? And they'll have some KPIs internally that they'll be able to use to measure the progress. They always do because the, 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 the badness of the current KPIs is why they called me. So they'll say, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we know that our, you know, whatever our customer service numbers or some rating will almost certainly lead to this outcome. And in the proposal, I will. Uh, give a guarantee of some kind that either a professionalism guarantee or a bug free guarantee or uh, responsiveness guarantee depending on the nature mm. of the work uh, I'm not going to guarantee that they're going to make a million a year, which is why I only would charge a fraction a price for a fraction of that right sure. if i if I could guarantee them a million dollars a year, I'd charge them five hundred thousand or seven hundred fifty thousand and yeah, they'd be yeah. crazy to not pay that to me every year right. So there's still risk involved, of course. Yeah, I don't know if you get it every year, but maybe one year. <laughs> I, I,
1: I did this with performance tuning because generally speaking, when we're performance tuning e-commerce sites, we already know what the revenue stream is. And yeah. so you'd make an estimate of how much more revenue you're about to generate for them by making the site go faster and say, hey, I'll tell you what, you can pay my fee or I'll take half of what I'm going to make you next year. Right. And uh, when you actually do the math for them, and show it to them, they're like, mm, I think I'll pay your fee. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's <laughs> yeah. fair.
2: I thought you'd see it my way. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, when you've had, when you've had a good why conversation up front, when you go to write the proposal, you can, at the beginning of the proposal, you can anchor really high with, you know, back of the napkin calculations from what you told me in the meeting, this should have, uh, you know, a a net positive impact of a million dollars in sales per year. Mm. So you're already talking about these, you're talking about value, 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 and then and you're speaking their language. Sure. Right. Right. And that makes all the difference. Yeah. Yep. But the one thing that I don't know, if I don't know if we want to go into it, but uh, for people who are listening, who are would maybe are just totally think I'm bananas and would never do this in a million years because <laughs> it's too risky. There are other ways to ditch hourly, as, a, as, as I say it, uh, that don't involve uh,
0: project work. And maybe if we have time, we can talk about that. But right now, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, I must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to make a value based proposal to you, sir. All right, I'll make you laugh if you write the joke. Just let me know when you got something. I'll take your time. We'll just wait. (laughs) No? Nope. (laughs) That doesn't work for you. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> well, anyway, let's. Uh, how about we give away a D experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club? Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries, and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best, without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Ruben Fernandez. Ah, Congratulations, Ruben. Yes. It's all flat for you, sir. And Ruben just won the D experience subscription a Big Pile of Awesome from our friends at Express. Just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, he was. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET rocks fan club but you got to sign up to win and uh jonathan you know what's coming up if you had five thousand dollars to spend on technology
2: today what would you buy so I, I to be honest i really had to think about this because i the older i get the less i'm into gadgets yeah but there is one thing that i have been wanting which is a full-on top-of-the-line vr setup yeah nice so something like, you know, Oculus with like a killer PC mm-hmm. rig behind it. Uh, but I actually have a friend who's got the HTC Vive and she thinks that one's the best. She's tried. She's tried them all. So for five grand, you can get them all. Well,
1: <laughs> no, I don't except think the so. HoloLens. Well, yeah, uh-huh. the HoloLens going to put a big old hole in that, but it's not really VR. But a, I mean, a f- one big full bore PC, you know, twenty five hundred, maybe three thousand mm-hmm. bucks and then at least a Vive and an Oculus because they're less than a thousand each. That's true. Yeah. I mean, the computer is the expensive piece. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You've convinced me.
0: Unless you put a Titan video card in there.
1: (laughs) yeah. If you you have an urge to drop two grand on a video card, (laughs) Nvidia is there for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Nvidia. (laughs) Yeah. They're
0: They're just looking out for you, man.
1: They're giving you options. They sure are.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, um, you've had this conversation that hopefully you've uncovered some of the motivation and uh, maybe even some of the, the financial benefit that the the company will get and they, they're sold on you. Now they're waiting for a proposal. Now, um, at some point you have to sort of figure out how much work it's going to be in a general ballpark, right?
2: Yes, but it's usually comically small compared to the price that you're setting. Yeah. So, not always, but it, well, yeah, it's, it's pretty common. There, there are four, it depends on what you're doing though. Yeah, sure. So there, are they're really, for every client engagement, there are four phases. There's the initial diagnostic phase where, you know, client comes to you and says, oh, I've got a terrible stomach ache. My abdomen hurts. Okay. So yeah. let's diagnose that before we cut you open for a fixed so, price usually, right? Yes. So you do a diagnosis. And then the, the next phase is prescription. So you can say, okay, you, you know, if, if you've got an appendicitis, then I'm going to send you to a specialist to have your appendix removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's, you know, fourth meal from last night's Taco Bell, then I'm just going to tell you to wait or maybe go to CVS and pick up like an antacid or something. Yeah. So, but I don't do either one of those things. I just say, okay, you know, this is the diagnosis. Here's the prescribed course of action run with it yeah the third phase is application of the therapy and this is the thing that most software developers do right Um, they usually don't charge for the first two phases at all because they either don't do them and just accept the self-diagnosis from the client and just do the tasks that the client is directing them to do which means they really are working hourly yeah and blind yes and blind and, or they do them, they give them away for free in the early stages of the the project. And they think, well, I'm going to make all this money by the hour. It's going to take six months at least. Uh, you know, I, I struck it rich basically, or they're all excited at any rate. And so they do the implementation and they, you know, build, 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 and then launch, then everybody's happy. Okay. We're done. Yeah. And then the fourth, fourth phase, you know, in, and in, in the doctor analogy, this is the appendix is being removed. And then, uh, the fourth phase is reapplication of the therapy. So, uh, in the case of the doctor, that would be coming back for more checkups to make sure that, you know, there are no infections or whatever. Uh, but with software developers, this is where support and maintenance contracts come in,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, where people say, okay, you know, now as your customer service reps have these sorts of issues or they need the tab order and the fields changed, or whatever, I'll fix those little tiny things. And if you think of those four phases, the most valuable ones, Are at the beginning. Yeah. And the value goes down, down, down toward the end. And you can tell that this is true by imagining who's going to be in the meetings. The early meetings, you're going to have the CEO, president, founder, chairman of the board. Right. The end, you're talking to like a customer service rep or like a junior developer. Yeah. Maybe you're not even talking to anyone. You're just taking stuff out of an issue tracker. Mm. So... Since most d- software developers, at least the ones that I work with, they they usually do all of their work in the third stage and either don't do stages one and two, or they do them for free. Uh, and then they think, oh, I'm going to get recurring revenue by selling support contracts to people I do project work for. It's like a they're focusing on the least profitable aspect of the engagement mm. and really need to focus on the the more profitable stages like diagnostic and prescriptive stages yeah so to pull this back to figuring out your cost to the cost in terms of time because that's really our only cost we don't buy two by fours or anything like that for our work it's all time so the cost of our time uh uh, the profit on our time is highest at the very beginning of that so so if i'm going to do a say a uh architecture diagram for somebody who is thinking about migrating from a homegrown WordPress solution to AWS Mm. and they want some kind of migration plan and an architecture for the software in the cloud, Mm. you know, that's maybe going to take me a week tops, you know, not, not even a 40 hour week. And I can charge like five or 10 grand for that. Sure. You know, so your cost when you're doing really profitable work and you're solving a, 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 painful problem or capturing a very valuable opportunity there and and you know what the goal is you can usually use your clever optimizing software brain to come up with uh, a shortcut yeah not a low quality shortcut but like hey you were thinking about doing this giant thing why don't we just do this right and come up with a way that you can i don't know leverage an open source library that you created or one that you're aware of and you know eventually what ends up happening is when you first start out, you'll probably still count your hours and be like, "Wow, did I make a profit on this or didn't?" But as you get better at it, you that just that just falls away because right. you're like, "This was profitable." Yeah, yeah.
0: And you also recommend to have a website with a fixed price for this diagnostic service on it, mm-hmm. so yes. that so that there's something to point them to, like, you "No, know, everybody can see this is what we charge: five thousand dollars for your initial spelunking." You know, to to figure out. And at the end of that, you can decide not to go with me at all if you want, but at least you'll have a a clear idea of what the work involved will be.
2: Yes, absolutely. I don't do any implementation work anymore. All of my new clients are in those first two phases where Mm. all I do for them is sort of diagnosing and prescribing. It's much more strategic than tactical. Yeah. So.
1: And that's also an interesting conversation all by itself. When do you used to stop working for yourself and start having
2: other people working for you? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any people working for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not, it's not my, I don't really want to be a manager. A lot of people do like having a team. Mm, Right. It's not my personally. Yeah. I used to manage a team before I went solo and did the, the, the value pricing thing. Mm. Right. And it's, it's, whatever, it's just not for me. So the, the thing that I see a lot of times is that software developers, they, f- they find themselves in this hourly trap and they're like, I'm just going to be doing this for the rest of my life unless I can increase my profits. How should I do that? Well, I have mm-hmm. to hire cheap labor and mark up their time. Right. And if you want to be a manager and you want to run that kind of a business, that's a fine approach. It does work. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, this other approach that I'm talking about here is your escape plan. Right. You know, I don't I hate the idea of seeing people becoming managers who don't want to become managers yeah, sure. just because they think that's the only way out of the trap. Right. Yeah. Is that low margin business I get if I can mark
1: him up 20 percent and I get 100 people doing that. Then I'll then I'll make money, but it's mm-hmm. not true. You know that's an incredibly difficult path to go down.
0: And you got to remember that this whole process may seem, you know, on the on the surface of it, maybe a little shady, dishonest, whatever you call it. But you're really guaranteeing a, a good product end product for the for the customer, which is what you want. You want them to be happy with what you do. And if you find out early on that they're not going to be happy with what you do, then uh, you you
2: don't do it. You know what I think is shady is launching into a project that you don't know what the desired outcome is and then ending up billing the client more than they were willing to pay. That's shady. Yeah, you're right. Get it all out up front.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the other part of this is really is just because you worked an hour doesn't mean your value was an hour. The crazy thing about software is you can work 100 hours and provide no value to the developer, right. to the customer at all. And mm-hmm. when you do provide value, you provide a tremendous amount of recurring value. Yeah, Our work has never been hourly. We're not flipping burgers. Right. And you know, when you flip burgers, you have to work an hour to provide value. Yeah. But when you write software... You work lots and lots of hours that provide no value before the whole thing comes together and you provide
0: immense value. This has never been hourly work. You're right. We just tagged it as such. Well, and because, you know, customers were willing to pay it. And I suppose that's the way it's been done. Um, I want to talk about proposals now because I know this is a, a big subject for just a few minutes on a podcast, but, uh, I got the gist of your strategy for writing proposals and it's, Give them three options in a proposal, and mm-hmm. uh, one of them is an estimate uh, based on the number of hours you think it's going to take at a certain number of hours. Here's what our estimate is, but that's not a guarantee. And the other is a higher fixed price, but they pay up front. Can you, and the other one, I can't remember what it was, but can you explain that whole process?
2: Sure. You're actually mixing two things together. So Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's great though, because the, the, the thing that you're describing is how I, I suggest people try to convert themselves and their clients over okay. from, from hourly to fixed pricing. And it's a, it's a transition phase. It's not even value priced. It's just a transition phase to get them off of hourly. Okay. And it's probably the better one to talk about. So, so the, uh, you described it pretty well, actually. So, uh, for people who are maybe thinking about doing this, someone, a client comes to them with a, uh, probably an existing client comes with a new chunk of work, say, Hey, we've got this little project. Uh, we need you to build a module on top of this other system you're familiar with. You say, okay, you do everything exactly the same way. Don't change anything about the way you work, the way you talk to them about it. It's, it's too much to do all at once. So just do one thing differently. And that is when you, you create the proposal do it like you normally would, estimate the hours, yada yada yada, but then add just one extra option which is a fixed price for the for the same exact work that is 85% more expensive than whatever your hourly estimate was. Huh. So if you if the hourly estimate works out to $10,000, you say, you know, or you can pay me uh, 18,500 and you know, upfront and it won't, there'll be no clock ticking. There'll right. be no meter running. Absolute charge. Yes. It's a price like everything else you buy. Right. It has an actual price because an estimate is not a price. So, right. it, but everyone treats it like a price until you go over it. Right. Yep. So the beauty of doing this approach is that you're, you're calling out, explicitly calling out that in an hourly situation, the client is taking all the risk. Yeah. And you're, you are making it almost painfully clear that that is the case. Because I, you guys are probably, you know, if anybody who's ever provided an estimate to someone in the past, they see that as the price. And you know they do. Yep. They're like, yep. oh, it's going to be $10,000. And then when it's 15000 and you come and say, well, the ten was just an estimate. They're not going to go, oh, you're right. Yeah, what That's were you thinking? Right. <laughs> yeah. Duh! So yeah. you
0: didn't estimate properly is what you're saying. Another reason right. for them to mistrust you. The
2: finger pointing starts. Yeah, you didn't tell me about whatever. So, the and the reason why I specifically say eighty five percent as the premium is because if it's higher than that. So, in other words, so let's say you estimate it to be ten thousand, and then you and then you say, okay, and then I'm going to commit to a fixed price of of eighteen five, and you you go, oh no, it's too scary. I'm not going to do it. Then your ten thousand is way too low. Right. So fix your fix that. Keep raising your hourly estimate until eighteen five or whatever the multiplier the multiplied out value is feels like uh, safe. Yeah, and adjust your hourly estimate so that the difference is about eighty five percent. And the reason why I, I I don't want I wouldn't want somebody to say okay it'll be ten thousand for the hourly estimate and it'll be twelve thousand right. For the fixed prices, because you'll almost certainly get killed. You're, you're going to end up feeling like you're losing money. You're going to resent the client. You're going to hate me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you need there needs to be a big difference between those two numbers. Because the risk that you're taking on in the in a typical software project is pretty large. There are a lot of unknowns, mm-hmm. unknown unknowns, as they say. Mm-hmm. And you can either put that on the client, or you can take it on. And as you get more and more expert at your job, you should start taking that on. And if mm-hmm. you do, yes, you're taking a risk. But guess what? Guess what comes from risk? Reward. Yeah, right, right. So, if you're not taking any risks, which you're really not taking any risks when you're billing by the hour, uh, you're not getting much reward. In fact, out, working by the hour is extremely unprofitable. It generates a lot of revenue, but very little profit.
0: And it's disincentivizing you, right, to actually mm-hmm. be more efficient as a developer mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to find better tools and to do things the right way. Or build a library. Yeah, you have an incentive to uh, to just keep billing hours.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why would you Why would you create an open source library? Why would you look for a plugin that achieves mm-hmm. the the customer's goal? Yeah. When you know it, it doesn't makes it. There's no financial incentive for you to save time. Think about it in any other way. Right. There's a strong disincentive. This will cost you as the hourly biller money. Right. Yeah. It's against your self-interest. So, everybody I talk to, they're, you know, people who bill by the hour are not immoral or unethical. No. But it's impossible to understand, until you feel it, it's impossible to understand the difference between billing by the hour, working on a project hourly, and working on a project where you don't get any more money at the end if this takes too long. Right. So, if all of a sudden you don't get any more money... Even I, who thought I was working at maximum efficiency, w- w- it's just laughable to look back on, you know, m- the work I did by the hour mm. and the rabbit holes I would go down. Yeah. Uh, you know, that I, that I, it didn't seem like I was doing anything wrong, but it, right. when all of a sudden when, when every hour you work decreases your effective hourly rate, yeah. all of a sudden you get real efficient, real fast. Yeah. <laughs> you are strongly incented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's great for the customer. Right, everyone wins. Customers love this. Yeah. Oh, oh so here's the thing. You, most people, when they hear that, oh, eighty five percent. Like, why would any customer ever pick eighteen thousand five hundred over ten thousand? Yeah. You'll be surprised. A lot of clients, especially if they've got experience paying people by the hour, cannot stand the feeling of being billed by the hour. Right. It's horrible.
0: What they can't stand is, you know, just the fact that they're driving around in the car and you're, you know, doing God knows what in something that they don't understand. And they just have a bill and they got to pay you for it. That, yep. That's what they don't like. Yeah. It's, it's,
2: I mean, to hire someone by the hour, see how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially remote. Yeah. What is it they do all day? Right. Right. It's almost like you paid some cab driver to drive around with you not even in the car. Yeah. 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 You don't know what they're doing all day. And you haven't told them where to go. The silly part is even if you watch them, you still don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's typing. That's where all these questions, everybody's had these questions, you know, where customers, especially when it gets, when you start getting close to the estimate, they start, turning into the, the typical client from hell. They start questioning hours. Yeah. Why is this taking so long? Why is right. that taking so long? Once you go over, they've lost trust in your ability to estimate it. And now they, they're faced with a decision of, do I kill the project and lose the money that I've invested in it so far? Or do, do I bet that we're, you know, within 100% of our goal, you know, within 50% right. more? Right. And they got to gamble. And they already don't trust you because now the estimate was wrong, whether it was your fault or theirs is immaterial. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They just know that they have to go to their boss or their investors or their bank account and do something they didn't want to do.
0: Yeah. So let's say that you've done this first step, that your next project, you've actually added this 85% upfront fixed price and it worked. And Mm -hmm. you're happy and the customer's happy. What's the next thing you do on the next project?
2: Well, I would uh, for a new client, the client or the same client? Let's say it's a new client. Okay. So for a new client, I would, I, I think after doing the fixed price one, you, dear listener, will have the feeling of what I'm talking about. And yeah. once you have that feeling, you don't want that feeling to go away. It's <laughs> great. Yeah. So you're like, okay, cool. Um, I'm comfortable with this. It worked out great. It was extremely profitable, or at least, or at least it was equally profitable, and I didn't have to track my hours, right? Which is nice enough. The next time around, uh, I would say if to to do a value priced proposal, maybe once you're comfortable with it, maybe it's not the very next time, but yeah. once you feel comfortable, you're feeling like you you got it down. Have that why conversation. Forget about what they want you to do. Figure out why they want you to do it. And ask those, those three groups of questions. And then in that proposal, what you're going to do is reflect back to them everything they told you in the meeting. Right. Here's why you have to do this. Here's why you have to do it now. Right. Here's why you have to go with me. Right. Like these are the reasons you can't go with something cheaper that we talk. you know, you can't go with these cheaper alternatives. You're going to need to get someone like me, you know? And so your competition, you, you become like a monopoly because the alternatives that they have to choose from. Uh, they start to disappear. Yeah. You know, you've already, they've already ruled out half, you know, 90% of the competition out there. So in the, in that proposal, I say, give exactly three options. So the first option will be the thing that you talked about in the meeting. So whatever, whatever goal that they wanted to achieve, that'll be the first thing. And you'll put in some deliverables that were discussed just so that people understand that you've listened to them and you heard them, but you're going to focus on the outcomes that they're, the benefits they're going to get from that work. So that'll be option one and it'll be, it'll have some fixed price. Then option two will be something different, but that you either, it either came up in the meeting or you believe that it's commonly valuable in situations like this. You'll say in addition, option two is everything from option one, but in addition, I'm going to add some, I'm going to do something different, but more valuable or Mm. additionally valuable, like migrate the data from the old system to the new system or provide some kind of uh, handoff materials to your internal staff or something like that yeah and the cool thing about doing this is there are a couple of cool things one is it it gets them thinking about how to work with you not whether or not to work with you right um, it gives them something to relate the prices to so you need people people are horrible at determining absolute value but they're yes. really good at determining. Uh, value between choices or which is is the optimal choice for them Hmm. so if you don't give them choices they're going to have to find some other price from somewhere else to compare your price to yeah so it it keeps them it keeps them kind of like just considering you not necessarily looking for comps in other words yeah and the paradox of choice
1: is pretty big on the always provide three choices and expect them to take the middle one
2: yes yes so you can affect that um with the pricing curve that you use, but usually you're going to try and push them into option two. So yeah. option, because your, your psychology is usually going to go that way anyway. Right. Uh, so option one, usually let's say option one is one X. If you want them to pick option two, option two should be like 2.2 X or mm-hmm. thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So a little bit more than double option one. And then option three would be like five X. Yeah. So it's like a home run price that if you completely underestimated the value to them, uh, or maybe even underestimated how much they trust you or how much they want you or maybe how much their budget is they yeah. might just go here have take all our money take as much money as you'll as you'll take yeah. and we want the complete concierge treatment right usually that doesn't happen usually you've got a pretty good idea and and option 2 is what they're going to end up doing
0: and this is solely based on their goals right they, their primary goal should be solved in option 1 with option 2 maybe there's some uh, as you say, some extra things that will also increase their value and maybe set them up for flexibility in the future. And maybe option three is just like uh, the full blown. If we could no holes barred, do everything that we
2: possibly want. There you go. Yep. Yeah. So usually what I do is the farther up the curve you go, you know, the farther up the, the options you go, the more of my direct attention they get. Yeah. Um, all the things will be different. All, like everything it like option two is not more of option one right it'll be something different and then yeah. option three will usually be like you know a uh, hotline to me yeah, for right. three months after Retainer, the project Yeah, you know? yeah
0: yeah and, and you also say don't put the prices with the options in the proposal put the prices at the end
2: of the proposal right yep absolutely yeah so the thing with uh, people will oftentimes want to jump straight to the prices yeah so this is, if, if you want to talk about anything tricky that I do, this is probably the trickiest thing I do, which is that I will put a dollar sign early in the proposal that is related to the value that they have told me that they expect to risk, re- that they think they're going to get out of this. Right. So let's say it's a million dollars. Right. The first dollar sign they're going to see in that proposal is going to be on page two in the project description of the project overview. It's going to be like, you know, roughly you feel like this should make a million dollar impact on your business. Mm. You know, so there's their eyeball scanning for dollars and like, oh million dollar yikes. Oh wait, that's just him talking about the value. That's not the price. Okay, yeah, great. Right. But it also sets that number in the head. Any number lower than that is a better number. hmm Yeah. Anchoring. So when they get down to the options, then it's like I, – because I don't want them really focused on the prices. I want them to think about the options. So and if the they value. just skip everything looking for the next dollar sign, they're going to go all the way to the end. And at the end, it's going to say option one is going to be $10,000. Option two is you know, whatever, 22000 uh, $22, And option three is 50000 But with no other explanation. So, right. like, so they have to read it. Yeah. They have to read the proposal. Exactly. Man, so important. they go, all right, what's option one? Now I got to compare these things. Now all of a sudden they're comparing options to options instead of being like, price instead of just price. jumping oh, to the dollars. end yeah. and seeing mm-hmm. $50,000 and getting sticker shock and just saying this guy's crazy, we're going with someone else. And we should note that it's been very successful for you. In fact, I'm really,
0: really ultra impressed at how you've been able to uh, – use this and, and generate tons of happy customers, you know, based on your what what your, was in your podcast and in your email course. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just give us a little bit of a resource where we can go find this stuff and your podcast and your course by
2: email and all that? Sure. Uh, the course is the best place for people to get started, which is uh, you can find at valuepricingbootcamp.com. Mm-hmm. And it you know, sort of walks you through a lot of the stuff we talked about here in in a little bit more detail. And you can, uh, within that course, you can find, you'll get links to things like my five page proposal template and, um, Uh, my book Hourly Billing is Nuts which people which I published last summer yeah Uh, the podcast is called Ditching Hourly you already mentioned that but really the best place to start is valuepricingbootcamp.com
0: and that is it's a free course isn't it and you just send Mm -hmm. emails one a day and with different chapters to give people enough time to digest it and and uh, it's been really great cool yep yeah glad to hear it Jonathan thanks very much this is invaluable stuff and uh, I'm really glad I stumbled across it Excellent. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. And produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time.